Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Meet philanthropist and humanitarian John Train, graduate of the Groton School and Harvard University, freelance writer for the New York Times and Washington Post, best-selling author of Money Masters in Our Time and The Midas Touch, and founder of Train Smith Investment Council. Train discusses his life's experiences and shares his expertise on investing and wealth creation. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. I'm John Train, an investment counselor who writes books and columns. And I thought I'd start by reading a few items from one of my books, which is called Remarkable Occurrences. These little events are all true. In fact, they've been researched practically to death. Here's the difference between diplomacy today and a few years ago. Thomas Jefferson, speaking of the American minister to Spain, once said, I haven't heard for, from him in two years. If I don't hear from him next year, I will write him a letter. Another political occurrence, which is not quite like American politics today, is the strange career of Victor Biaka Boda who represented the Ivory Coast in the French Senate. He set off on a tour of, hinter, of the hinterlands of Ivory Coast in January 1950 to let the people know where he stood on the issues and to understand their concerns. One of them was apparently the food supply. His constituents ate him. <laughs> Here's a um, little story of club life. The secretary of the Athenaeum in London told me that once a noble member in the dining room, exasperated by slow service, asked his waiter indignantly, Do you know who I am? The waiter, contemplating the member with sympathetic concern, replied, No, sir. No, sir. But I shall make inquiries and inform you directly. <laughs> John, where do you find this material? Uh, in the investment council business, you read an awful lot, and uh, these things turn up. I, I feel we shouldn't, however, leave the subject definitively without the last words of General Sedgwick, uh, which occurred at Spotsylvania on May 9, 1864. The general was trying to rally his men who were dodging around under the, under the enemy's fire and said to them, Come, come. Why, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> <laughs> I came across that, that one in answer to your question in a book by, uh, about Oliver Wendell Holmes called Touched with Fire. The general was also touched with fire. Yes, he was. And all of this is real. All of, oh, yeah. all of these uh, remarkable events or words, etc. Obviously, the words are real. Um, did you start writing in college? Is it, uh, yes. Uh, in fact, at school. I... Uh, was the editor of the literary magazine there, and then at, at school, and then at college, editor of the so-called humorous magazine. And By school, you mean high school you were writing? Yes. Well, then, then on moving to Paris, I became uh, an editor and a writer for a literary magazine there. Well, where did you go to college? Harvard. B.A. and M.A. In what area? It is essentially European studies. But you said you're an investment counselor. Well, it's all grist for the mill. If you don't know about uh, what's going on in the world, you can't invest too well. Uh, 
Do you make your living by writing? No, you make your living by... It's a sideline, but it's a very enjoyable sideline. And, well, and, and in fact, for me, a very important sideline. Well, as an investment counselor, if we might take a minute uh, and set that aside uh, before we delve into the literary world of John Train, uh, what kind of advice do you offer people? Is it, what's your most frequently offered advice to uh, people regarding successful money management? Don't try too hard for very dramatic effects. Try to stay with successful growth companies over long periods of time. If you do that, the portfolio should grow as fast as the growth of the companies themselves. And the companies themselves can usually grow at comfortably 15% a year, and so the portfolio should grow at comfortably 15% a year. Uh, in fact, the record has been quite a lot better than that. If you can improve matters by skillful choice, then uh, you can increase the performance. But uh, over very long periods of time, uh, staying with growth will do wonders. Money at 15% doubles every five years or so. And at 10%, it doubles every seven years. So if you are somewhere between, say, six years, if you're talking about, let's say, uh, a 36-year investment horizon, you'll have six doubles, which brings things to 64 times your original capital, which is quite good enough. Yes, particularly if you start early in life. Yeah. That would be an easy way to build up, uh, quote, a very comfortable retirement. The, the, the result of starting to invest very early is amazing. There's nothing in the world like compound interest. John, with that in mind, why is our Social Security program bankrupt, or seemingly bankrupt, every other year? It wasn't um, funded arithmetically correctly. The... Uh, Demands on it came at once, and the funds to satisfy those demands came later. The uh, combination of uh, Social Security and, medic and me medical support for the aged is uh, are vastly in excess of the funds appropriated for the purpose. I, I believe it's correct that half, well, 10% of the United States gross national product goes to health care. I believe that half that health care is in the last year of one's life. And... Um, that's an enormous figure mm -hmm. and rising all the time. So to correct Social Security, we'd have to find a point at which we'd say, all right, from, uh, from age 30 up, we'll have to cover people on it in the same way we have, but people under 30, we're going to go into some kind of investment program, and then we wouldn't have the problem anymore. Perhaps. Uh, I think that in the end, uh, that society will welch one way or another on both Social Security and medical care, and you can do this by letting it be inflated gently, letting the claims be inflated away, in other words, by uh, not keeping up with the cost of living, or by having a means test, or by taxing the income, or one way or another. The, the political judgment is that in the next century, the uh, fewer younger people will somehow not have the political will to support the more numerous older people. But ultimately, though, the system would bankrupt if we carry that to its ultimate conclusion. And therefore, you're suggesting something, for example, there already is the movement toward increasing the, or, or raising the retirement age. 
So you really have fewer people drawing on Social Security by doing that? Yes, although strange enough, the removal of mandatory retirement has not greatly increased the number of older people who go on working. But one way or another, the thing uh, equalizes itself. It's like the effect of uh, inflation on excessive indebtedness. Inflation throughout history has slowly boiled away the claims of creditors where debtors let themselves get too far into hock. So fixed interest contracts for future repayment are, are something that seldom pay off. It's, it's a very dangerous thing to buy, a, a, a very long term. Mm -hmm. Well, before we return to the humorous writing, uh, you've also written a number of books, uh, uh, serious nonfiction books, uh, on the matter of financial management. Yes. Um, uh, has the, which came first, or, or is that, as is so often the case, a silly question? The, 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 your activities as an investment counselor came first, and then you wrote these management books, or have they been parallel all along? I began writing before I was an investment counselor, but I obviously began writing about investment counsel matters after I became an investment counselor. And most of the demand for one's writing is about what one is supposed to know about. So I'm now principally a writer on investment matters, and that arose after I was an investment counselor. How many books have you written of that time? Could you name them for us? Uh, Tenish. Uh, the most recent is called The Midas Touch, which is about a famous investor called Warren Buffett, who ran a stake of about $6,000 into a billion five just by investing uh, very slowly uh, in a classical fashion. Um, one is called The Money Masters, which is about nine of the very greatest investors, and exactly how they did it. I went, to, I went to live with them in some cases, but went minutely over their records to discover how the techniques worked. Um, another is called Preserving Capital, which is about that problem. That really describes my point of view and operations as an investment counselor. Uh, famous Financial Fiascos goes through a whole series of what I hope are instructive catastrophes in the past. Uh, in the hopes that people will learn enough about them so that they won't repeat the I'd like to same pick mistakes up, today. I'd like to pick up on that, but before we do, I want to go back to the very first example you gave. You said that Warren Buffett started with $6,000, turned it into a billion plus. And, uh, so therefore, one quickly should be encouraged. It does not require a beginning, uh, a very large beginning position for someone to be uh, very successful in, in investments? No, the, ver the very best investors tend to have compounded annual rates of return in the 20% area. And with any significant stake, money grows so fast at that rate, it doubles every three, three plus years, that eventually you have an enormous sum. Mm -hmm. You can keep the thing growing without breaking the flow somehow. Well, let's uh, return to the, uh, your interest in humor in, in the reality. In other words, seeing the funny in the day-to-day -day occurrences. Uh, the Financial Fiascos book, uh, can you give us an example? What's the story from that book? Well, a great many things that are happening today have happened in the past throughout history, as far as we know. 
I mentioned the repudiation of excessive claims through inflation. Well, that's gone, that goes back not only to the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, but to ancient times, to the Romans, in fact, back to Hammurabi. Uh, one that we've seen an awful lot of late is going into uh, foreign investments because they seemed, on the face of them, to be more <coughs> attractive than domestic investments. So what, what I call the distance lens enchantment to the view syndrome. The uh, enormous American loans to third world countries, particularly Latin America, are slowly in the process of being extinguished one way or another. And this again has gone on uh, throughout history. The, uh, some of the greatest bankruptcies of all time were uncannily similar to our wormy Latino loan activities. The uh, South Sea Bubble is an example. The French Compagnie des Andes, both of which went bust. And um, more recently, the French Suez Canal uh, promoter, Ferdinand de Lesseps, went on to do the French Panama Canal project, which went colossally bust. They, they, they didn't understand the issues. It looked attractive. Uh, they didn't have reliable engineers. And uh, people put up immense sums, every penny of which was lost. It was. Uh, said by the Encyclopedia Britannica to be the most corrupt human endeavor of all time, business, business endeavor. But it was also one of the worst researched and most dramatic. And uh, that pattern, what I, as I say, the distance lens enchantment to the view pattern, is one that occurs over and over again. You think that, uh, you, you know that something's not good that's next door, but you think it may be better because it's a, a, a continent away. The English in colonizing the United States and, uh, and the rest of the world did the same thing with their East India Company, etc., right? Most of those didn't make money. The, East, the British East India Company was enormously successful. It, it uh, exploited India and, in fact, uh, a very large part of the visible wealth of present-day London. Uh, you look at these magnificent houses, a lot of them are built on the fortunes of, created by uh, John Company, as it was called. But the um, South Sea Company oh. uh, was a spectacular bankruptcy. And that was English also, right? Yes. That was a predecessor of the East India, is that right? Came first. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, in the book fi uh, Financial uh, Fiascos, I was, I was fascinated by one, uh, the, the story on tulip mania. You recall that? Of course. That was one of the greatest speculative orgies in all time. Uh, the the phenomenon of a speculative uh, mania works like this. You have something of intrinsic interest. It can be precious stones or gold or apartments in New York or anything you like, for which for some time there hasn't been, have not been a great many buyers. Uh, so the price falls. And pretty soon it's fallen as far as it's going to go. There are always some buyers, though. So finally, the bottom is reached and things start up. The same is true in the stock market. Every few years, you have a stock market collapse and things start up again because there are always some buyers. The rising prices then attract more money, which puts the prices up higher, which attracts still more money. And you have a sort of water spout effect. Anyway, in tulipomania, the tulip, which was a fairly new uh, 
plant in Europe and, and remarkably beautiful uh, and capable of very interesting uh, genetic variations. You can hybridize the tulip and produce dramatic effects that are quite, quite, quite lovely. T the tulip uh, began rising in value and particularly very rare tulips became an object of collection, like, like the occasional manias you have in collecting certain kinds of art. Um, the rising prices attracted more investment, the increasing investment put the prices up and so on. And after a few years of this, you eventually had a tulip stock exchange, you had special, special tulip courts to um, adjudicate business arguments about tulips, and uh, some astounding prices were reached. You, you, you remember that the other day, uh, uh, one Van Gogh changed hands for $40 million. This is the same Van Gogh who, in his lifetime, never sold even one picture to anybody except his own brother, who was trying to be nice to him. So it goes up, it goes up, it goes up. And similarly, the tulips began going up, going up, going up. And finally, uh, whole businesses would be turned over for the price of a single, very rare specimen, an Admiral Yonk or whatever. Uh, the values became so outrageous that something had to prick the bubble and eventually they started to fall again and when they collapsed they took the entire economy of Holland with them. For years and years business was stalled as bankruptcy cases wound their way through the courts and as all these uh, claims and securities were worked out and settled on one basis or another. And uh, it eventually set Holland back uh, for the best part of a decade. I thought the, uh, the specific story you related of the buyer who, upon acquiring a rare bulb, proceeded to take a hammer out and bash it. Uh, not, not quite, but very close. Was uh, it something? To find a black tulip is extremely rare, and sometimes it happens by accident, but only by accident so far. And a, uh, one particular grower discovered that he had a black tulip. And as you say, uh, buyers appeared, paid a very fat price for the thing, I mean the equivalent of our money, I suppose, of $700,000, and uh, instantly put it on the floor and smashed it with their feet and said to him, uh, idiot, we have another black tulip, and because ours is now unique in the whole world, it's infinitely precious. We would have paid you much more for your tulip. And the poor man was so chagrined that he said to have died. How, how to that story is, I don't know, but it's very commonly related. Mm -hmm. And of course it goes on, you talk about cigarettes in New York. You well, also talked about, the, yes, go ahead. Well, that's, that's the problem of excessively high tax. I, I happen to be in Mali, which is the uh, former French Sudan, French Sudan in West Africa, when, as often happens in uh, socialistic countries, the money supply ran out and the city fathers of Bamako, which is the capital, decided to try and raise some easy money by taxing whiskey, which in a Muslim country the locals don't drink and which anyway is typically consumed by foreigners in Africa. So they doubled the price on whiskey. Well, the result could have been predicted. Uh, the black market became the real market. Trucks would 
barrel up from Abidjan and nearby Ivory Coast, dropping off a case or two for the customs guards, and the stuff then appeared in the market, or, or souk. It became like Chicago during Prohibition. The uh, official sales of whiskey dropped to very little. Well, the city fathers made the only logical decision, which was to double the, double the tax again, <laughs> whereupon the uh, tax receipts dropped to zero, and the only market became the black market. Uh, we've done much the same thing in New York. We've increased the uh, taxes on cigarette to the point where most cigarettes sold in New York, according to figures I've seen, are in fact smuggled in from other states and don't pay the New York tax. I understand also that the enforcement costs to try to prevent the black market sale of cigarettes in New York City is greater than or close to the amount of taxes actually recovered. Well, that's, I haven't heard it expressed as a, an economic law, but obviously it is an economic law. If the taxes become outrageous, the enforcement cost will have to exceed the receipts after a while. Well, we've kind of gotten over into serious financial matters again, and we're really more interested today in the uh, humorous books. Although, although, strange enough, there is a funny side to most... Uh, oh, it is. It, it's, it's, all, it's all very human. There's nothing in economics that doesn't relate back to human behavior, and human behavior has its comic side. Well, you, you also had the story of the Sydney Opera House uh, in there. Um, interruption here. I wouldn't recommend that one because that depends on the exact... Oh, yes, I can look it up. Um, Let's see, that's back here. No, I'm sorry, it is in fiascos. Yeah, it's in financial fiascos, I think. Or is it in occurrences? Yes. Well, in any case, uh, the cost of that rose enormously, and it was a, a government project. The point I, that came to my mind as I read it was uh, these financial fiascos, though, they're not... They're not all government. It's, it, it happens all over the specter of... The government makes the very worst uh, investment and financial decisions, but uh, the rest of us do our share as well. Why do they make the worst? Because the motivations aren't right. The uh, government is usually trying to please a political constituency and doesn't have to worry about going bust or coming up with the money out of its own pocket. Well, you've written many of these remarkable books. How many? Five. And wh what was the first one? first was called Remarkable Names. I've always enjoyed uh, writing down extraordinary names of actual people. And um, eventually I published a little collection of them. And uh, that, of course, got people to send in more names, and so it went. And so you've added to it. You've now, published now, now it's a whole, whole work of demented scholarship, yes. Well, would you share some of this demented scholarship with us? With pleasure. And you're prepared for an influx of more names. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I welcome an influx of more names. Well, actually, one of the very, very first, uh, which I read in Collier's magazine years and years ago, was a man who lived in Hoquiam, Washington, called Mr. Katz, K-A-T-Z, Meow. M-E-O-W. One time I was being interviewed uh, on a radio program about this book, and uh, the interviewer asked, is there really such a person as Halloween Buggage in New Orleans? And I was quite indignant, because they're all very carefully researched. And so the 
interviewer called up Halloween Buggage in New Orleans, Louisiana, and said, is your name really Halloween Buggage? The point being that she'd been born on Halloween. And uh, Halloween Buggage replied, yes. And what's more, there's a, we have a little Easter Buggage now. There's a child that had been born on Easter. <laughs> um, in H.L. Mencken, there's a Indian mentioned in the northwestern part of the U.S. who has the sinister name of Unable to Fornicate. <laughs> that quite, is. Quite, quite serious. There was a Mr. Vice whom I discovered, again in New Orleans, I read about him in the Paris Herald Tribune, who was arrested 820 times and convicted 421. Probably a, uh, a record. Um, one man that turns up over and over again is a uh, in the advertising business, and he's now in Greenwich, Connecticut, but I happened to meet the man who signed him out of the army. Uh, the, uh, he signed his name on the release form as W.B. Darling, and my, my friend said, well, you have to give your whole, whole name, middle name included, and reluctantly he signed his name, which is Welcome Baby Darling. And as I say, he's, uh, he's now quite a success in the ad business. Um, one person again turns up over and over again who was a gynecologist in New York Hospital. Um, called Dr. Zoltan Overy. And I particularly admire his wife, who almost has to be Madame Overy. <laughs> yes. John, that's... You know, I can think of reasons why people would have names like this. Parents want to get revenge, or, uh, or they just want to be funny. But the coincidence of the relationship between the name to occupation... Uh, is it pure happenstance? You know, I think so. I think so. The, um, Dr. Overy would be a Hungarian. His real name would be pronounced Ovari, I think. So that has to be a coincidence. There are an enormous numbers of, number of um, doctors with names like um, uh, Payne and Bonebreak and so forth. But then again, there are an enormous number of doctors. Um, I think it's nine-tenths of the time. Uh, I've, I've known a number of... Uh, Coincidence, nine-tenths of the time. I've known a number of, uh, of um, clergymen with religious names. For example, I, I actually know the Reverend Christian Church, who was I came across in the Florentine flood relief effort of 20 years ago. And I, I uh, um, actually know the Reverend O'Prey and uh, a number of other such persons. But I think it's a coincidence. But most, uh, but uh, well, the initial names you did the research on, and now I, I assume that as you said, people have just sent in and are adding to your collection. That's right. The problem is, the problem is to check them. Uh, lots of people have collections of extraordinary names. When you try and look them up, you discover they're not quite right, or they're nicknames, or whatever. And the telephone book doesn't suffice anymore because people put funny names in the book to avoid paying the little premium that you have to have, have to pay uh, if you don't want to be listed. So you have to actually talk to the people or get some uh, definitive document, birth certificate. Yes, that's true. In fact, I know an individual who, who did that for a different reason, which was that they did not want to be identified because of their celebrity status, but on the other hand, they did not want to be not listed. That's it. So they listed under a different name and then told their close friends what yeah. that name was. It's a good deal easier than... Uh, having a no, no listing and the, te the telephone company doesn't care, but it confuses the work of the nutty names collector. <laughs> one, one my eye falls on here that I, I, I very much like, I found in the Harvard Medical School alumni bulletin. Uh, 
He was born in the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And his name is Legrunt, L-E, new word, G-R-U-N-T, E, Crapper. Uh, now, now I, you would think, I have to think that parents are sadistic who would do something like yes, that. Yes, although, as Mencken points out, uh, sometimes it comes about because of uh, the um, mild sadism of interns and medical students who are assisting in maternity hospitals. Ah. That happens a fair amount. Who modified the name slightly in no, some just, way. No, just, just suggest, suggest uh, crazy names to ignorant mothers who are To break up the boredom of delivering all these babies. Then, then sometimes hospitals have utility names that uh, are never removed. For example, uh, there's a male infant Kilgore who's a taxi driver in Chicago. Uh, they just never thought of a name while he was in the hospital, so they, he kept the one that was on the form. And there's quite a common name, uh, which is, again in Chicago, is one occurrence, Female Jones, F-E-M-A-L-E. Family Jones. Female. It was yeah. fe it's female, you see. Oh, female. Oh, yes. Fascinating. Why don't people change such names? They do. Uh, quite often they change them to something worse, but uh, they may well be changed. Female is, of course, a change from female. Yes. And Legrunt E. Crapper is said by his doctor to have changed his name to Legrant E. Crapper, which is probably, <laughs> it's probably an improvement. Yes, yeah, slight, but... Uh, somewhat. Um, you edited the Harvard Lampoon, as I yes, understand. Yes. Um, did you develop a sense of humor by doing that, or did you? I think you almost, I think you almost lose it. Strange enough. If oh, you, you do. If you look at enough uh, jokes, funny stories, and cartoons and comic poems, eventually you uh, laugh very little, if at all. I must, I must say, just in passing, in the 18th century, it was considered uh, inelegant to laugh. You weren't supposed to laugh. You, you were permitted to cry a lot. Men, men uh, 18th century men in America particularly, would write to other men saying, I wept, I wept all night on reading your letter and so on. But uh, a, uh, a gentleman uh, rarely smiled and never laughed. One of the, one of the French philosophes, I think it was Condorcet, was once asked by a woman who was sitting next to him at dinner, don't you ever laugh, Mr. Monsieur Condorcet? And Monsieur Condorcet thought about that for a while and then turned to her gravely and said, Non, madame. Moi, je ne fais jamais le ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Did uh, you enjoy telling jokes when you were in high school? Or? As a little or boy. Stories? A little boy. No, preschool. No, I used to tell little jokes. I told, told jokes. But not after that. Not after Although that. I do, I love, I love of course, uh, Amusing, amusing tales of one sort or another, but not so much uh, proper jokes. Well, is it, is it your view that human beings are basically funny? Yes, I think it's been rightly said that uh, the world is a comedy to those who think and a tragedy to those who feel. Of course, the greatness of Shakespeare is that he goes through uh, both modes one after another. Did the, you started the Paris Review uh, seems to me soon after college. Yes. Did that in any way uh, reflect the experience with the Lampoon? Yes. Uh, running a little magazine, and the Paris Review was both a small magazine, was and is both a small magazine and a little magazine as technically defined, which is a magazine that discovers authors. Run running, a, let us say, a small magazine is a craft. You learn all the parts of it, like, like cooking, let's say. You learn about collecting the manuscripts and editing them and manufacturing the magazine and getting the art together and keeping up the subscriptions and all the rest of it, ads. And uh, you can learn that very well in a college publication. 
in uh, the preface to Remarkable Occurrences, one of your other books of remarkable collections, George Plimpton uh, makes a comment about your stone skipping ability. Uh, do you claim any rank as an expert in that category? I've done an awful lot of uh, throwing. I was a schoolboy pitcher and then a javelin thrower at college, and uh, and he thinks around quite a lot. And uh, but I don't know if if it's more skipping than throwing. I've occasionally hit birds on the wing, for instance. Oh, you have. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you have a stone skipping? St startled the birds. Did you, I assume? Did you uh, uh, have a stone skipping contest with George? Is uh, that the source of his information? I don't know. Must have. But I, I have. I have. The subject comes up from time to time when one's on the at, at the shore on a riverbank and. Uh, yeah. Did uh, Did you spend some time with Plimpton? Is Is he? A yes. Uh, I succeeded him as editor of the Lampoon, and then was the managing editor of the uh, Paris Review, which he was the principal editor. We're, we've been, uh, old, we're old, old friends. Are either of you still involved with the Paris Review in any direction? Oh yes, he, he is very much. He still puts it out. Oh. I'm, I'm on the masthead, but do as little as possible. And I must say, there isn't much to do on a quarterly, literary quarterly. It's a tiny publication. And it's a literary quarterly that doesn't even come out four times a year. It comes out about three and a half times a year. Um, uh, George seems to share your fascination with, uh, uh, well, odd activities, or at least living, uh, uh, experiencing a lot of things. Yes. Does that go way back? I mean, it, it, I assume day, your days together in Paris must have been a lively uh, time. Yes, it was great fun. It was, a, it was a, a wonderful period. Remarkable Relatives is a little different from the other books, as I understand it. It's fictional, as opposed to being real uh, relatives. But I, and I wondered if you'd share some with us, but uh, also I'm interested to know whether any of your relatives were as zany as you portrayed them. <laughs> Uh, we have to have another little break here. Uh, would the uh, drawings appear on the? I mean, could the camera pick them up? I didn't bring it out here. I mean, I could I could read some of them. I have to I'd have to ask you to go in and get them. But but the would, camera would, no, the camera couldn't pick them up. So I think we'll just uh, skip over that. But I think it's best to forget the whole subject. Yes, forget the whole one. You see, the but it is, is different. It's fictional as opposed yeah. to the others being. So that when people buy the books, the, the other ones uh, that we've mentioned, remarkable occurrences are real events. I, I wouldn't even mention remarkable relatives. Yes. But remarkable occurrences is real, are real events, financial fiascos. Every, everything is, is not only uh, true and accurate, but extremely carefully checked, true and accurate and, and carefully checked. Well, if we could go back to Remarkable Occurrences, if you have that there with you. Sure. You might share with us some of uh, those. Some of the best ones are little uh, morality plays. I like the poor woman who uh, jumped out of a window in Prague uh, out of despair that her husband was betraying her and landed right on the head of the same husband, killing him instantly. Uh, it's like a fairy story. The very best fairy stories uh, satisfy deep desires that we have. But here's one, for example, n not of that type. Uh, the American ambassador in London, Joseph 
Choate was once leaving an official reception dressed in plain black. We, the United States does not have a diplomatic uniform, but everybody else did. So another, the Argentine ambassador, um, seeing him out front and thinking he was a servant, said to Choate, call me a cab. And Choate looked at him for a moment and then replied genially, you're a cab, sir. Calling him a cab in the other, other sense. Um, the uh, diplomat that went, then went storming inside and told the uh, number two man in the British Foreign Office that his servant had insulted him. And uh, so the Englishman came out and understood what had happened, explained it to the, to the diplomat, who cooled off a bit. And uh, Choate then said, if you'd been better looking, I would have called you a handsome cab. <laughs> Our diplomatic relations with Argentina, then, have, uh, we now know why they've been at a low point. One of my favorites is uh, a predecessor of the present Pope John. His, uh, there was John XXI, who was an extremely uh, bad Pope, and was tried at the Council of Constance in 1414. And of, of this trial, uh, Gibbon, the historian, records, the most scandalous charges were suppressed. The Vicar of Christ was only accused of piracy, rape, murder, sodomy, and incest. Lovely man. Yes, lovely. One that uh, I know to be true because the protagonist, or his, his uh, grandson, told me is the first Englishman who ever came to Sikkim, a modest Himalayan kingdom, uh, first European. The first European who ever came to Sikkim was a man called Deputy Commissioner Campbell of Darjeeling. The Maharaja of Sikkim, actually called the Chogya, was in one end of the, of the throne room when Deputy Com Commissioner Campbell came in the other. And the Maharaja was astounded and turned to his vizier, who was the only man in court who spoke English said, who are these extraordinary creatures with red cheeks and hair coming out of their faces? They look like monkeys. And the vizier turned to Campbell, didn't quite say that. He said, his highness bids you welcome and trusts that you did not have too arduous a journey. That was diplomacy. Is writing easy for you, John? Do you, work, do you have to work at it or is it? Ah, it's easy if you have it extremely clearly in mind what it is that you want to say. Uh, writing is a craft, like bricklaying or making slipcovers for furniture. And uh, in a few years you can master it, I mean a few years, 20 years. And after that it, uh, it flows quite well. The scrubbing, scrubbing it up takes about as long as doing it in the first place. The uh, correction of the weak verbs and ferreting out the mot juste and so on. But the actual, the initial writing is quite, quite easy. But the most important point is to get in mind clearly what it is that you want to say. Yes. If, if in the matter of the craft of writing, uh, of expository writing, what one's taught in school is exactly right. One should first do the outline, write it out and then correct it, and write it out again, and then have that over on one side, and then work through the text following the outline. 
if you, if you write things down as they occur to you, it takes much, much longer to straighten them out. Does it make any difference in, in your mind whether the uh, goal is to write a serious book or a financial column or whether the goal is to do a, one of your humorous books? A column is usually a thousand odd words long and um, it's a, a form that I've learned through practice, having done hundreds and hundreds of them for a variety of publications. Um, you, you should begin the column with a grabber, a little story. A man met another man and told him this and so. And if you can get the reader to read the first few lines, um, probably he'll go through the whole thing. The, the virtue of a column is to express a truth that is contrary to the reader's preconception and adds a few new facts. As the most amusing and interesting and useful columns are those that expound uh, unfamiliar or better yet unpopular ideas and make a good case for them. That's really useful. Uh, the thing begins and ends in this very, very short time. It's like a, like a little sonnet. They should also, if possible, be, be human. It's best to uh, reduce abstract ideas to a human level. And they, they, of course, have to be phrased extremely clearly because if the idea is to convey an unfamiliar idea in a short time with arguments and demonstrations, it must be written in a, a lucid and uh, accurate style. In uh, longer expository writing, you can take your time. And you can also assume the reader is with you. If you, if you write a book on uh, how, to, how to skip stones, for instance, it, it is not going to be bought except by someone who wants to know what you have to say. So the problem of uh, the grabber and all that uh, disappears. Again, however, it should be uh, very clear. In, in longer pieces, articles and book-length pieces, uh, one can try for a much richer kind of style with... Uh, a certain amount of humor and all the rest of it. Now, going on to fiction, which I read with pleasure but don't write, I think that the uh, rules are completely different. And myself, I think that the, uh, one of the flaws of American fiction today is that it takes itself much too seriously. I uh, greatly prefer the convention of English 19th century fiction where it is considered uh, good taste that everything be a little bit amusing. The phraseology is uh, a little bit amusing, the foibles of humanity brought out. And uh, you can't possibly say that Dickens or Trollope are inferior to contemporary novelists, but they're certainly much more fun to read than most contemporary novelists. They're at least as, they're at least as profound and at least as moving, and the characters are probably better developed than contemporary novelists. Uh, when do you write? Any particular time of the day that you do write? Saturday mornings. Uh, on trains, on planes, uh, odd moments. When in, you're in summers, vacations, but I, uh, when, I, when I'm away from the office. So that when you when you're here in Maine, for example, in the summer, as opposed to being in New York uh, during the uh, the fall and winter, yeah, you do more writing here, a book type writing. Every time, because yes. I assume you do the columns on an ongoing basis. Yes, I can sometimes get a little bit ahead in the summer. Yeah. Is there any, any formula, any advice you'd offer on how to become a successful writer? Any 
column writing is a performing art, like uh, music or theater or ballet. The, uh, you're extremely conscious of the reaction. If you write a newspaper column, there'll be uh, results quite promptly. And that result feeds the concern of the colonist. It, it, uh, it's like, like applause, let's say. Um, and that's, that's very easy. Uh, the colonist doesn't need any special motivation, I don't think, because all performing arts are very attractive to, for the performer. For um, other kinds of writing, books and so forth, by far the most important thing is the uh, compulsion to do it. I think we all know uh, any number of what you might call non-artists, people who uh, occasionally paint on a weekend, or who uh, would like to write a play, or uh, have an idea for a movie. Um, it's the compulsion that makes the artist, I do believe, more than any other thing. Uh, an artist is a craftsman who does it more and better, and undoubtedly will have to survive an enormous number of disappointments. So. Uh, I think the best advice one can give to a, a young artist in any field is uh, don't even dream of it unless you are possessed by a desire to do the thing in question without any regard to uh, results for years and years. Isn't there a, a relationship, uh, perhaps a, a, a slight one, but a relationship between that element as a necessity in successful creation and incentives in terms of successful investing? That's a very hard question. I would think not. The, uh, well, a very great investor, let's say the top 20 in the country, uh, will of course be fanatics. There isn't much payoff, uh, this is a strange thing to say, but there isn't much payoff financially for the very great investor. I mean, after you've passed, uh, let's say, several tens of millions of dollars, or even 100 million, or 200, 3 million, 100 million dollars, it doesn't do any good to be richer. So, uh, you're actually worse off in many ways, so... Uh, How are you worse off to be richer? You're actually worse off... I contend you're actually worse off. And therefore, to go on and on and on and on, getting richer and richer and richer until finally you drop dead, uh, is, a, is the act of a fanatic, not the act of a rational person. Okay, why is a very rich person worse off than a not-so-rich person? The answer is that you become a public figure. Everybody's after you. Uh, you begin to want to have an anonymous number in the telephone book. Uh, your friends uh, all have little causes that they trot out for you. Your uh, children lose the normal incentives of children and become uh, sophisticated. So you have to give up a lot. You've traveled widely. You enjoy traveling. Has that contributed to your writing? Oh yes. The, it, one is likely to be a much richer writer if one has traveled in at least three different senses of that word. Uh, as you just used the expression, physically getting around gives you far more subjects. I mean, where would uh, Joseph Conrad have been if he had been glued to his desk? Uh, the best American writers particularly often have a very broad experience geographically of life. 
second, however, you should travel backward and forward in social terms. In other words, the old English tradition that you came down from Oxford and took rooms in London and began turning out uh, reviews and think pieces, what we would, what in the journalistic trade is called thumbsuckers, uh, was a very bad idea. You, 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 it produced literary writing as distinct from deeply human writing. So you should know uh, different classes of people, you should uh, have been in different businesses, uh, different uh, crafts, uh, be a merchant mariner, a lumberman. Uh, Hemingway, for example, has a, has a very deep, he's traveled deeply, both physically around the world and up and down among different classes of people. But then there's a third class, a third type of travel, which I think is much more important than people in America today consider it to be, which is uh, knowing history. It greatly strengthens one's hand in expository writing if one can produce authentic examples. Uh, from history, and that was the point of my book, Famous Financial Fiascos. If, but I even think it's very important in the investment business. If you uh, don't know how similar things have happened before, then you have much less of a lead on how they're going to happen today. And if you want to write about things today, it's much better to have understood what happened in previous time. The uh, tradition of the learned writer was very strong in the 18th century. The uh, Samuel Johnson, for example, is, and all his peers are constantly referring to uh, history. So there's three kinds of travel that I think are very helpful. You've met a lot of people, I assume, on your travels. Yes. Uh, the great, not so great? Every kind. Every kind. Uh, tell us about the most fascinating person you've met. Well, I've met a few uh, very remarkable ones. Um, whom I often write up. Uh, one of them is, of course, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who I think is one of the great men of the present day. I think people are very aware of him. Um, another one is uh, Eugene Ionesco, whom, I've, whom I think is a really saintly and wonderful figure. Uh, lives quietly in Paris now. Another is uh, Professor Parkinson, who very kindly wrote an introduction to my book, famous financial fiascos. I think he's one of the uh, most wonderful thinkers and incidentally a good example of this point I mentioned before, he always takes the trouble to present things in an amusing way as I think from a, a solemn way or a, uh, in, a, in a turgid and uh, academic way which professors are likely to do. Uh, Parkinson is one of the most right, most correct people one can find uh, as a guide for what's happening today in the world. Those are three, what seem to me to be, very different people. What do you feel they have in common that, you know, is there any single thing that they have in common that attracts you to them? Well, the first two, Ionesco and Solzhenitsyn, and I might say these are examples chosen more or less at random, but Ionesco and Solzhenitsyn are, have a tremendously strong moral concern with what's happening in the world. Most unfashionable idea today. Um, Parkinson, I think, I think does too, but, but in a scholarly way. He's, uh, he considers it... Actually, all three are, uh, are guides and moralists, but coming from different, uh, different approaches. Parkinson from simple practicality, what works? And Solzhenitsyn and Ionesco uh, from the standpoint of what's best. Solzhenitsyn, 
in a sense, though, it, it seems to me he is, it, I don't know quite how to state this, is, is most relevant to an obsession that we have now and that we must have with the Soviet Union. Uh, in other words, his name sp springs to a high level of interest to me because he comes from that society to ours and we're in this conflict. Uh, That's been his primary impact. I think that, that, that Solzhenitsyn, who's obviously uh, an immensely sincere, heroic man, uh, did more to expose the horrors of the Stalin era, and indeed some of the post-Stalin era, to a skeptical European intelligentsia than uh, the United States Information Service did throughout its history. I mean, the, the, the witness, the bearing witness of this one heroic man, a prodigiously well-informed man, uh, completely uh, ruined the uh, Communist Party in France, for instance. That one man. Um, but and how did, how but, did but that's not necessarily his greatest importance. To be sure, that man's protest about Russia was very important. But I think that in the end, his greatness may well be his criticisms of America, which are of a very different sort. He criticizes the materialism of America. He uh, criticizes the lack of emphasis on spiritual values, which indeed he finds uh, very strong in Russia today. As well as in the United States. Oh. Oh, he doesn't. No, I, th I think you think there's a great shortage. I mean, you, obviously you have, uh, depending how you how you read uh, uh, the, res the revivalist preachers and all that. But uh, he's not talking about about uh, religiosity. He's talking about spiritual values. Very different matter. And and uh, what would his answer be to those who feel that we can come to some reconciliation with the Soviets? Well. I speak more to her than to him, uh, but did have 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 talked to uh, his wife since the Glasnost campaign began, and to use her own words, she thinks it's a pregnant time. The uh, Gorbachev government, particularly presumably the man himself, realizes that the whole system is broken down, that it's totally corrupt, and that it has to be renovated from top to bottom. An extremely difficult thing to do. That means bringing in new people. You're conducting a major overhaul of a collapsing structure. Uh, to get, get the several million people involved in the Communist Party and the Communist government means that they have to be convinced that you're not going to chop their heads off after a while. It's not another hundred flowers campaign of the type that Mao conducted. So they ha he has to make irrevocable commitments to, to uh, free speech and a certain, a certain free freedom of behavior, but not much. They've, they've locked up about as many new dissidents as they let out, uh, the old ones. But anyway, a bit. Um, so th there are changes. There is a renovation of the structures. But that's probably good for Russia, but it may not necessarily be good for us. A, a more effective Hitler wouldn't have, from our standpoint, been a better Hitler. But still in all, I think one has to assume that uh, uh, what humanizes 
Russia, what makes Russia more decent, uh, will in the end be good for us. Well, coming back to humor rather than humanizing, uh, one book that you wrote we haven't uh, touched on yet, in fact, two or three, were, were remarkable words. I don't think we've touched on those, Mike. Do you, uh, could you share with us uh, some from that collection? Yes, I love words. Um, it's an extraordinary subject because words go back to the dawn of um, the dawn of the race. Uh, one should no longer look up words in a dictionary that only goes back to Latin and Greek. You, can, you now have dictionaries that take them back to the Indo-European. And um, what's an astonishing subject? Today, for example, is Tuesday. Well, Tuesday comes from uh, the Indo-European root uh, dios which means um, sky. Dios, in turn, uh, came into Greek as Zeus. Zeus reappears in Latin as Zeus Pater, Zeus the father, or Jupiter. The same word, going around through um, Old Norse, which is one of the origins of our own language, is the root of a Norse divinity called Tis or Tyr, whence Tuesday. So uh, Tuesday and Jupiter are philological cousins, what are called doublets. Um, there are wonderful uh, echoes of uh, philology in the investment business, for example, in which I engage. Um, the word money. The, throughout history, money and banking, uh, banking and uh, temples have been related. It's no accident that banks often look like Greek temples. The process was that if you make a pilgrimage to a temple, you want to take away a, an amulet of some sort, some holy object, uh, and those are best made of gold which doesn't tarnish and is easy to work and is rare. So there tends to be gold in the cellar of temples. The uh, Temple of Diana of the Ephesians, for example, at Ephesus, uh, had an enormous storehouse of gold. Well, once, that, once that's true, uh, you can conduct custody operations. Um, you, can hold, you can hold other people's gold in storage. Once you have a cellar full of gold, you can... Uh, issue bills of exchange, like uh, uh, the U.S. Treasury. Well, the temple at Rome uh, that acted as the treasury was that of Juno, uh, in her capacity as the admonisher or warner, Juno Moneta. So that's where you kept the gold, that's where you uh, conducted treasury operations. The word Moneta gave, of course, Italian Moneta, uh, French monnaie, whence our word money. The same word going around through Germany was in German Münze, which came to us as mint. So there you have a uh, the word origin that is closely tied in with uh, the investment business. And on that note, <laughs> we will conclude uh, having tied together 
the financial and the literary side of John Train. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.